Welcome to this August Ask the Expert webinar. Now, without any further delay, I'd like to introduce today's host, David Molman with Align Technology. David, you now have the floor. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us on today's Ask the Expert webinar, Changing Trends in Orthodontics and Why Aligner Therapy Fits Seamlessly into Your Practice with Chris Minson. You will earn two CE hours for attending today's program, and you will receive important instructions on how to obtain your CE certificate at the conclusion of the presentation. Additionally, CE hours will automatically be added to your InDesign Doctor site account. Please note you're able to listen to today's program via the webcast. And throughout the webinar, you'll have the opportunity to ask text questions, which our presenter will answer at the conclusion of the presentation. I apologize in advance if we're unable to answer everyone's questions. We'll follow up after the program to answer any outstanding text questions. Today's program will be archived in its entirety one week from today on the Education tab of your Invisalign Doctor site, where you may also access archived versions of all of our previous Ask the Expert programs anytime for CE hours. It's now my distinct pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Chris Benson. Chris Benson has been working with orthodontists regarding the business aspects of their practice for over 25 years. He is currently a partner with Benson Cobble & Associates. Chris also serves as Editor-in-Chief of the Benson Clark Resource, a quarterly newsletter focused on the business aspects of running a successful orthodontic practice. He is a frequent guest lecturer at orthodontic resident programs, study clubs, and orthodontic user meetings. He's a contributor to national orthodontic periodicals and journals. Over the course of Chris's career, he has personally visited over 1,000 orthodontic practices in the United States, Canada, and Australia. So without further delay, I'm going to turn the program over to Chris Benson. Thank you so much, David. Uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you this afternoon and, uh, and for the online uh, listeners uh, that will log on to this later. So I, I appreciate the hour. So uh, we'll kind of dive right into this. I'm talking to you from North Carolina, which is where I live and where my business is. And um, I, I wanted to uh, highlight one of the words in the title, and that's uh, how can Invisalign really fit seamlessly into your practice. We think of Invisalign as a disruptive um, really product in a good way and if it fits seamlessly into your practice to me that means it's not disruptive and um, I'll give you a little bit of my background as we go through this today but um, I'm a numbers person. We do valuation and transition work in my shop and uh, seamlessly to me means that uh, Putting Invisalign into your practice doesn't disrupt your overhead, and um, I think that's something that we're going to address today, and hopefully by the end of this hour, not only will you get your two CE credits for education, but you'll have a good idea of how you can incorporate Invisalign um, as, as heavy as you want to go, um, and it, have it not affect your overhead, because that's one of the main objectives that I saw early on in, in the early years of Invisalign, and one that I have a very confident grasp on now of, of how you can seamlessly uh, make Invisalign a, a deeply penetrated uh, practice modality in your, in your practice. So uh, let's get started. And uh, before we do, Invisalign has asked me um, to show you this disclaimer, uh, which you're used to seeing. And I'll just highlight the bottom sentence um, that says, if you want your two CERs or credit, uh, stay on till the end. There'll be a link. Uh, that will show there at the end uh, that you can log on to and, and get your CE hours. So David, uh, uh, thank you again for the introduction. Um, I have spent most of my adult career um, with orthodontics. Um, I kind of rocked out of the practice management cr cradle in the late 80s. And really now for 27 years, I've been working uh, exclusively with orthodontists across the United States primarily, some in Canada 
and uh, have had several trips over to Australia. And so when you're 55 my age and I've uh, been doing this for a long time and speaking on the business aspects, I'm kind of at a stage in my career where I get to give back a little bit. And these are some of the places where I get to do that. And I want to highlight a couple of these. Uh, one is the AEO has a uh, American Association of Future Think Tank Committee. Um, there's uh, six trustees of the AEO on that and a couple business folks on one of those. And we're just trying to think through everything that's happening uh, pressure-wise um, with consolidation, with direct-to-consumer, and, and so forth. We'll talk about some of those things, but the AAO is thinking about that. Um, I serve as an advisory member on the AAO Bulletin. I'm a board member of the AOF, and I would encourage you that uh, they give research grants out. There's a lot that can be done really on Invisalign or other places. So if you have a son or daughter or uh, a young resident that you know, or if you're an academic on this call, um, we we would be happy to uh, entertain any kind of uh, ideas you have around the idea of, of, of doing some research um, on the Invisalign product and, and getting that published and supporting you financially uh, through the AOF. And if you haven't given to the AOF, um, uh, I hope you'll consider that. Um, I'm an advisory board member for a company called Ortho4D just because I was very interested in that product. I think that what we're going to see as we talk about this end-to-end -end digital platform um, is, uh, you know, some changes in the way that we monitor and, and uh, look at our business. And Ortho4D, in my opinion, has a, has a nice idea around that on the clinical side. Uh, I'm a committee member of the AAO Practice Modalities Task Force that Dr. Dwayne McCamish uh, chairs. And uh, what we try to do there is there's so many different options now for you with VSOs, with working for a pediatric dentist or general dentist or starting your own DSO that we're trying to really understand what are the different options for orthodontists to work out there in the marketplace. And uh, that's been a lot of fun to look at that. And uh, if you are a business-minded orthodontist out there and have some great ideas on business, give me, a, give me a call at the end of this because I also am editor of uh, the progressive orthodontist business of um, orthodontics section of that magazine. So that's kind of what I spend my time doing um, uh, kind of volunteer-wise when I'm not doing valuation and transition work. Um, I always uh, kind of show this slide and harken back to, you know, when you're in grade school and you think your your teacher doesn't have a family. Um, so I like to show mine. Um, I do have a family. And uh, I'm in the middle of uh, – three kids, um, and you can probably not tell which one I am uh, until you see what I look like now, which is here, and that's me in the middle. So I'm a middle child. Middle children are supposed to be good negotiators, and that's kind of what I spend my life doing, uh, is trying to get yes on partnership deals and transaction deals between buyers and sellers. And so that's what we do here in our shop is uh, value practices. My family is uh, three children. And they're all kind of millennials, so I understand that world real well. That uh, gentleman in the middle, the tall one, um, is kind of a genetic throwback to the normal height. I'm only 5'7", so he's about a six-footer. That's Campbell, and he's a third-year law student in North Carolina. Uh, my middle one is a personal trainer. Uh, that's Hunter. Uh, my youngest one is a senior at Chapel Hill. That's O'Malley. 
and I'm not sure what she's going to be doing next year, but she graduates on Mother's Day, and Campbell graduates the Friday before Mother's Day. So two graduations next spring I'm looking forward to. And the leader of my family is right there on the right. Um, she's the best looking and the smartest one of, of, of our group. Um, I grew up in Kansas, and growing up in Kansas, it was kind of a Norman Rockwell experience. I was kind of an Eagle Scout and was camping all the time, had a lot of land around, and so we live uh, on a little piece of property um, in Summerfield, North Carolina, and my wife and I just bought a little cottage uh, three or four years ago, and we're uh, renovating that and hope to spend a lot of time there in the future. So uh, the last picture I'll share with you is this one. When I'm not uh, doing what I'm doing now or working, um, I like spending time on this tractor. I call it my therapist, and I have a little bit of property to take care of, and so spend this time of year four or five hours every weekend on that, just doing some mowing and so forth. There's a little outbuilding back here with some chickens in it, so we get about a dozen eggs a day, and there's a, about a half-acre garden back there, too. So that's a little bit about me. What I want to talk to you about today is the orthodontic um, marketplace. And to do that, I'm going to talk about some of the pressures that you may be feeling and give you some ideas about what I'm hearing about that. I want to specifically then focus on uh, three of those pressures, uh, DSOs, which is really about consolidation, um, how we've got to act today as far as getting the phone to ring, which is around marketing, which uh, not so many years ago was kind of a taboo subject for orthodontists, and then some of the technology that we're spending money on now and so forth. So I'll highlight three or four of those, and then we'll get into really the meat of the presentation, which is Invisalign as a practice modality for us. I'll talk a little bit about the company some market data around uh, what we're seeing uh, with the Invisalign products, some practice data that, uh, from some studies that I've done uh, to get comfortable with how you can do this profitably, and lastly, it's the consumer data. And so that's what we'll do over the next hour, and then we'll have some time for some Q&A um, to the extent that you guys have questions about anything that we talk about today. So that's the plan. And uh, to begin with, then let's talk about some of the forces that are moving the specialty. You all on the end of this call are experts in forces, and those are forces that move teeth, whether it be with a bracket and a wire, or more importantly uh, for this call, whether it be with a piece of plastic. And just as there are forces that you can apply um, to get a finished case done, there are forces in the marketplace that are being applied um, around you and, and to your businesses, and I want to talk about those a little bit. When we think about some of the pressures of practice growth, and hopefully you're at a, at a point where you're, you're really thinking about, you know, how do I make my practice uh, healthier? Maybe it doesn't have to get bigger on the top line, but how does it get healthier on the bottom line? Or if you want it to grow it, how do I do that in the current environment, which is uh, quite frankly very challenging? And so as I go around the country, and I'm in about one or two practices a week, um, and have been for many, many years, and years before that, um, you know, even even more than that. This is what I'm hearing you tell me right now about the pressures that you're feeling um, about why it's difficult to grow bigger. And there are more than this, I'm sure, but these are the most common ones that I hear. And so I want to talk about each of these, but as I look at this list, it became apparent to me that uh, we worry about a lot of things as human beings and as orthodox practice owners, certainly, um, we worry about uh, things as a practice uh, or a business owner, small business owner myself. I worry about what's happening 
out there in the in the marketplace, and I have many of the same worries that you do, and I try to address those strategically uh, within my company, just as you are. But what I see here on this list is uh, a list of things that are all uh, pressures, but only one of which we can do anything about. And I'll spend a little bit of time in this webinar talking about spending um, because I have a lot of expertise in that area of how you spend money and how much is left over at the end of the day or the month or the quarter or the year. But all the other uh, pieces of information, all the other pressures here that we see, we really can't do a lot about. However, we can have a strategy around each one of these. And I want to walk through some ideas uh, with you um, ar around each of these pressures and strategies that you can think about as you think about your practice. And the first one will be more orthodontic competitors. Is that true or false? Well, it actually is true. We have more orthodontists graduating today than we've ever had before. There's reasons for that. We have orthodontists that are actually working longer number of years than ever before. Um, in the 80s and 90s, doctors retired between 55 and 60, and today they retire routinely at 65 to 70 with a trend towards 70. So we're working longer careers and we're graduating more people, and that means there's more orthodontists around you than there used to be for most of you as practice owners. And as a strategy, um, I would like to suggest to you that you think about, for some of you, not all of you, but for some of you, um, a strategy that I call uh, invoking the Utah effect. I'll take this spotlight off uh, as I talk about this. But the Utah effect is um, uh, years ago when you went to a practice in Utah, there wasn't that many orthodontists there. Um, There's a lot of families that were LDS that have a lot of kids. And um, boy, what a great place to practice. They had a high dental IQ. They cared about uh, their dental hygiene. They went and saw their dentist and so forth. It was a great place to practice. But Utah today, in my opinion, is one of the tougher states in the country to practice. Perhaps if you're on this call and you're from there, you're nodding your head right now because um, there's just a lot of folks that have traveled back to Utah to be at home. And um, what happened in Utah over the last 15 years is any time that there was a new housing development that went up, there would be an orthodontist before the houses were even built that planted a sign on a piece of property that said, coming soon, um, you know, Dr. Smith orthodontist or, or whatever the name happened to be. And it was really a strategy to put a stake in the ground around which other orthodontists uh, might be, you know, discouraged from coming there uh, and so forth as, that, as the houses and the rooftops got built out that hopefully would have, you know, national average 2.3 kids. And so one of, the, one of the things that you can do because there's more competition around you is consider in your drawing area which direction your town is growing and does it make sense to plant a satellite office that you visit one day a week. The statistics that show us and the, and the information that I've studied over a long number of years show us that the average solo practitioner has a one day a week satellite office and that that produces 350000 a week and only has a less than 2% upward effect on overhead. So in many cases, it's the most profitable place you, stay, you, you, you uh, practice in, and it's a strategy for the fact that there are more orthodontists. It's not for everybody, but uh, it's not going to have a huge up, upside on your overhead after it reaches maturity, which I would say is five years. It's probably going to produce about 350000 a year on average. That's the data that I see. And it's a good way to kind of 
keep competition that might be considering going in that area away if you've already planted a sign and there's not a huge population. So an idea for you there. Uh, more pediatric uh, dentists as competitors. Um, that's also a true statement. Uh, when you look at the graduation rates of the pedo schools, there's 77 of those now against 67 ortho schools, and they're graduating about 405 pediatric dentists a year against 380 um, orthodontists a year. So if you straight line that over a generation, there's 7,000 pedos in the country now. There's about 10,000 orthos. In my opinion, over time, there'll be more and more pedos entering the market. And um, I think two strategies here to consider uh, with pedo. One is if you're a mature practice and you have a great pedo referral, um, this whole idea of planting a satellite uh, is a good one, but do it with your pedo, share the build-out cost, and you can be there one day a week and they can be there one day a week, and that's a good way to leverage the cost of that uh, satellite. So we really like the concept of sharing uh, real estate with a pediatric dentist, and if you're a younger orthodontist, and you happen to have a classmate, um, and there's a whole lot of pedo-ortho uh, married teams out there right now, we think partnering with a pedo early in your career is a great hedge um, against things. And what we see, we think, metric-wise, is about 1.5 million in non-Medicaid pedo production throws off about a million a year in ortho. Let me say that one more time, because that's a mouthful, but about 1.5 million in pedo production that's non-Medicaid that's a key word, non-Medicaid, will throw off about a million dollars in referrals a year in pedo. So partnering with a pedo, um, if, you, if you pick somebody that can get to scale, is a good idea and, and can throw off quite a bit. And if, you're, if your partner's in real estate um, or even partner's in the practice, uh, you avoid a lot of the fee splitting, star clause, those, those kinds of things because your business partner's together. Um, or general dentist um, doing orthodontics. Um, we see this, and um, often when I'm lecturing uh, here, every dentist in my town is doing Invisalign. And I want to dispel that rumor because it's not true, and um, they are doing a lot of Invisalign, but not everyone. There's 150,000 dentists in the United States, and when you look at um, North America anyway, about 60-some percent of the Invisalign case submissions are coming from orthodontists. Um, and when you look at the throughput of orthodontists that Invisalign publishes, they're doing between 11 and 13 cases um, um, a quarter, and the dentists are doing, you know, 20 to 25 percent of, of, of that volume. And so we also only see a fraction of the 150,000 dentists submitting cases, and so you know, they are doing some, but they're not doing it all. And I think uh, you need these relationships, whether they're doing Invisalign or not, and partnering with your dentist um, is a very important strategy and should be invoked. You can't, most of you can't fully go direct to consumer with your practice because you just don't have the scale to hit them and you'll you'll need some referrals. So we don't want you to divorce your, your, your practice from uh, this referral base of general dentists. Doctor directed or do it yourself orthodontics. Um, if you look on the social media pages that are for orthodontists, and there's many of them, and I'll share some of those with you later, there's a lot of uh, uh, verbiage uh, about what's happening. Uh, we tend to gravitate to uh, SDC, Smile Direct Club, 
Uh, there's six months miles and a whole slew of products like that on on the bracket side. And um, you know, just this week there was a lot of discussion about three new companies that are SDC-esque, if you will. One's called SnapCorrect, one's called Smile Love, and there's a new one called Candid Ortho. And all kind of this, you know, take pictures with your cell phone, send them in with this impression kit that we'll send them. We'll have a doctor-directed diagnosis, and if you qualify, we'll ship you aligners at home. There's a lot of newness around this. There's a lot of new information we're learning around this. And most of these companies will say, this patient won't show up in your office anyway, and we're seeing that to be true. And so we'll talk a little bit about that, but um, we can't do much about it. Um, and I think there is a strategy for you as an orthodontist to decide, and there's a lot of discussion about this, whether you want to tier your practice with two different products. Uh, one is kind of a, you know, Invisalign Light. They've got that product for you. And, you know, is there a subset of patients that you could attract and treat perhaps for three, four, five thousand um, that is a target market for these doctor-directed companies? And I'm starting to see anecdotally many practices invoking a, a kind of a tiered strategy and having kind of an Invisalign-like product um, that's not full-blown Invisalign as uh, a way to get into this, this expanding marketplace. And we'll talk about market expansion a little bit later too. Corporate dentistry and DSOs, um, is this real or is this like OCA um, you know, 20 years ago? or 25 years ago, I think it's real, I think it's here to stay, and I think it's growing. And, um, you know, as a strategy, um, if you're in a drawing area where there's a lot of DSO activity, a lot of corporate dock-in-the-box, if you will, activity, um, I think when, you, when I listen to these folks, we're members of the ADSO, we go to their meetings, we want to know who they are and what their plans are, and uh, we found you know, some of those are good answers. Uh, there's some in orthodontics only, and we'll talk about those. But um, when you listen to them about where their pain points are, that's a place that you can leverage your practice. And their pain points are primarily two when they discuss, you know, what hurts inside the DSO space. One is doctor retention. Uh, they can hire doctors because there's lots of them. We already talked about that. But they statistically don't keep them more than two or three years. And then those young doctors bounce out and they buy practices or they start their own practices and so forth. So doctor retention is one, and you have longevity and security in the fact that you're a practice owner, so you should talk about that. The other thing that they're really all focused on, the DSOs right now, is practice culture or corporate culture in this case. And each of you have your own culture, and we're finding that competing on culture is a winner right now. And I think if we uh, polled each of you and said, you know, what's different about you than a corporate dental office, you would say the touch that I have with my patients, the care that I provide for my patients, and probably the finish that I get for my patients. And I'm not a good judge of that, but um, I think competing on culture and competing on the security that I'm your doctor and I'm going to be here uh, for a long time to treat not only you but your other children um, is very important. And that there's going to be no disruption of doctors in treatment are two areas that I would focus on. Uh, this last one here, fewer kids, um, that's something that really I don't hear from you, but I know is a fact. Uh, we had a population kind of boom in 2007, right before the recession, when people had more money, more spendable money. And after the recession hit, we really had a decline in the number of births in North America. 
It went from 4.3 million to 3.9 million, and it stayed flat at 3.9 million. So right now, in 2007, when we had 4.3 million children born, those kids are now 10 years old in prime orthodontic age for the next two or three years. So I think for the next two or three years, uh, you need to be really focused on folks that are coming into your office and whatever your growth and guidance program is, your strategy right now needs to be to, to secure relationships with those folks and continue to see them. And I'm seeing a lot of growth and guidance positions that's, that's there's a full-time person that all they do is recall and bringing these people back into the office on a routine basis um, and so forth. Sometimes the doctor doesn't even see them. But um, there are going to be fewer kids going forward. Right now we're at a maximum number of adult ready, of, of adolescent-ready kids, and we'll, we'll have that phenomenon for the next year or two. And after that, every year for the next eight years at least, um, the data that we can see, we're going to have fewer and fewer kids entering the market, about 10% fewer. So um, 10 to 15. So, uh, you know, ramping up your adult patient base and taking good care of the young children in your office is, is really important. So those are some ideas on strategies around what's happening, um, things that you really don't have control on. We'll talk about higher spending uh, a little bit later in the webinar. So the results of all this are that um, we're seeing that the average orthodontic owner is operating at about 80% of capacity, meaning that if you had more patients calling, you could fit them in without having to expand your physical plant, without having to add a chair, without having to add a doctor, and so forth. So we're not at full capacity as a specialty. And there's a new term here on this last line that says revenue per FT is averaging 180,000. What does that mean? I'm going to revisit this a little bit later, but FTE means full-time equivalent. And the data that I see in the practices that we value say, show that the average revenue per full-time equivalent is 180,000. To translate that, if I had 10 employees times 180,000, I'd expect I have a $1.8 million practice. And what we're going to see is this is a very important number for you to understand in your own practice and manage against as Invisalign products become deeper penetrated in your practice because the hedge for the lab fee is going to be getting more out of your staff, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But remember that number that the average right now is 180,000, and we want that to be higher as you incorporate more and more Invisalign treatment into your practice. So that is a little bit on the pressures of practice growth and what we're seeing there. I want to talk about some forces more specifically, the DSOs, some marketing ideas and technology and the effects it's having on your practices. So who are the largest DSOs in the country? This is a list of the top 10, and these are almost all primarily general dental practices, but they also do a fair amount of orthodontic treatment. And um, the other DSOs that are more orthodontic specific are places like Smile Doctors that are growing in an incredible clip, Spring and Sprout, which is a pedo-ortho DSO, uh, that in parts of the country are growing uh, quite a bit. There's a uh, large number of DSOs that are really doctor-owned and are kind of grassroots emerging DSOs, and these are anywhere from single doctor-owned five practices all the way up to 10 or 15 and so forth. So um, it is growing quite a bit. If you look at the top four dental DSOs in 2011, this is how many locations they had. And in 2017, this is how many locations they had, and that's 111% growth. And I would submit to you that there are very few 
areas in dentistry that have grown over the last six years at 111%. And the one area that has grown that much is, in fact, Invisalign treatment. And we'll take a little look uh, at that in some slides that follow. But tremendous growth in the DSO space. When you move to marketing, um, this is just a picture that I think uh, describes you know, our situation right now. We are spending a lot of mental thought. We're spending a lot of dollars. And we're spending a lot of you know, conversation and idea time around the concept of how amidst this noise of corporate dentistry and consolidation and pedos doing ortho and general dentists doing ortho, how do I get heard? How does the consumer hear and know about me so that my phone rings and I have the opportunity to schedule a new patient exam? And um, so we're doing that and we're seeing uh, incrementally increases in marketing budgets. And the average that I see when I value a practice, and remember that, that my clients are probably in the later stages of their active practice life cycle, but the average spend is about 2.5% of revenue on marketing. I have seen 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10% if you're heavy into TV, radio, and, and whatnot in your marketplace. And so marketing is something we didn't do much of in the 80s and 90s beyond T-shirts and and book bags and, and things like that, but now we're spending quite a bit of, of money on marketing, and the, the measure of return is, is hard to see sometimes. And so we've got to partner with ideas and groups, and I think Invisalign is one that has done an amazing job in the hundreds of millions of dollars that they've spent um, marketing directly to the consumer um, about their product, and, it, it, and I think it's something that you can hit your wagon to. Um, so that's one idea. But um, one of the things that I think um, orthodontists are craving for as well is, you know, who can tell me what's working and what's not? And really in the last five years, probably started eight or nine years ago, but in the last five years there's been an enormous growth in the number of kind of orthodontic-specific uh, social media groups. Most of these are on Facebook. This is just a list of the top 12 that are on my Facebook feed that I follow. Um, many of you are familiar with these. If you're not, take a picture of this screen or, or contact me later about you know who, who's out there. But some of these groups have 2,000 orthodontists on them. Some of them have 400. Where Invisalign is concerned, there's three groups that I follow, and there may be more than this, but OrthoCosmos Private Forum is uh, by Dr. Scott Fry and Sean Holliday. It's really a clinical forum and a kind of a technology forum, and they post frequently, and so do their members, and you can uh, sign on uh, to that. We think that's a great idea. Aligner Insider, the middle one there, again, is a clinical uh, forum. It's, it's really headed up by Dr. Barry Glazer, who does quite a bit of speaking for Invisalign, and it's a place where you can trade ideas about cases and whatnot, a good place to grow. And then this Learn, Engage, Grow by Invisalign is a very new Facebook page that you can ask your Invisalign rep about, but it's sponsored by Align itself. And <clears throat> it's just a forum to speak about the Align uh, suite of products. And so we'd encourage you to get on that. And lastly, technology. You know, we're spending more money on technology, and as I look at it, it looks like this to me. Um, not so long ago, really 30 years ago, you bought an analog radiography machine. You had a dark room, and if you were uh, really extravagant, you might spend $19,000 on that machine. 
and it would last you 25 to 30 years. Uh, once in a while, I'll still trip over one of these when I'm doing evaluation, but they went the way of digital pan-CEPs, and if you remember those early days of when we went digital back really in the early 90s, um, you know, we could buy a Plan Mecca or a Serona or whatever manufacturer you wanted. We were spending $80,000 on these machines, and the life expectancy of that machine was about seven years because seven years later, everything was so bigger, better, faster, stronger. If you remember, we talked about, um, you know, pixel size with, with cameras, and we still talk about that with our cell phones, and every new iteration of the cell phone has clearer and clearer pictures and so forth. But quite a bit more money, quite a bit shorter lifespan. Then we had this kind of cone beam revolution um, where you could buy um, an iCAD or a, one from another manufacturer, and, and that began when those first came out at $200,000. And again, about every seven years, we had one that had so much of a low, lower dose of radiation that we were switching those out for the new model. And right now, you can buy an iCAD Flex or something like that for, what, 135000 $140,000. Still a lot of money. Uh, but we're, we've been switching those out fairly re uh, frequently, and it really spawned a new company out of Atlanta called Renew Digital that chased the you know, cone beam folks around. And every time you switched one out, they would <coughs> offer to buy that from you. And there was kind of they they became kind of the CarMax of radiography for dentistry. And that company's done phenomenally well, by the way. Then we had scanners, and at first they were kind of like drawing with a brick or you know drawing with a football. Um, big wands and slow and all kinds of things. But right now, scanners have really overtaken um, cone beam in the marketplace. As you all are aware, you can get an iTero scanner. There's you know, earlier generations with bigger wands and so forth. But this is, I think, the standard bearer in scanners right now, uh, this in Trios. And if we're going to talk about being more efficient with our staff, and giving them the tools they need. This is something that you should likely consider in your practice as an iTero scanner. And then now we're into all the buzz on social media and at the shows is about digital printing. And a, a true commercial grade digital printing setup will, will run you 25 grand in your office. You can get the printers for less, but all in with support and training and everything. Um, you're talking about maybe 300 of these being deployed in the United States right now in orthodontic offices, and that's going to grow um, very quickly as that technology continues to improve. But uh, so we're spending more money, and um, and this is kind of the, the picture for me. So just some words on some pressures, uh, some more specific information on some of the forces. Uh, that we're seeing in the marketplace. And now let's really dive into talking about the Invisalign product suite and the company and, and so forth. So as we look at Invisalign, the company, um, you know, I'm a business guy, and so I've enjoyed um, following Invisalign my entire adult career because it was born kind of at the early third of my career. And because it's a publicly held company, they publish data that really is just specific to orthodontics. So it's been interesting to me. I don't think I've missed too many quarterly calls over the last 20 years about, you know, what has Invisalign really uh, taught us and, you know, what can we learn from the data that's there. Um, you know, Invisalign became a company in 97 and went public in 2000. It's 20 years old um, this year. So they're celebrating their 20th birthday. And really what's happened um, 
you know, inside that company and in Orthodox the last 20 years, and, and there's, there's been a lot. When we think of Invisalign, this is kind of an internal chart that um, they allowed me to share, but um, this shows them kind of a revenue graph from 1997 to 2016. And what I want to focus on really is what's happened recently, because if I kind of gray out everything and just look at the number of Invisalign patients that have been treated with the technology, this very disruptive technology, you'll see that, you know, it took really until 2009, um, almost nine years after they went public and, you know, 11 or 12 years after they were, were, were formed as a business to hit one million patients. It then took um, four years to hit two million, two years to hit three million, about a year and change to hit four million, and they fully expect to exceed a million a year now. And so this is one reason you're seeing this kind of revenue climb is that they're kind of getting through the proof of concept phase and into the you know conversion phase of we've 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 talked to the consumer, they say they like this concept, and in at a faster and faster clip, um, the consumer is asking for this when they're coming to your office. And so that's a little bit about what's happening in the last 20 years and the pace at which it's happening. When you look at the financial markets and you just kind of follow, um, you know, what's happened to the Invisalign stock and how the investment community has viewed the company. Uh, when it came out in 2000, it was $7.50 $7 a share, and it kind of just drifted slightly higher with some, with some dips, as you'll see, really for almost 15 years. In the last five years, it started to become this kind of startup hockey stick uh, graph, which is kind of unusual for a 20-year-old company. You'll see here that at the end of July of this year, the stock was trading at 167. I think I looked at uh, mid-morning this morning. It was at 173 or something like that. Um, it's hit as high as 179 um, and so forth. But, um, you know, it, it, it's just a, a company that is producing uh, at scale a lot of aligners right now, and there's a lot of adoption in the orthodontic space in North America and globally, um, and that's driving a lot of this. Um, so tremendous growth. When you look at Invisalign just as a, a company, uh, if you wanted to compare it uh, to two public companies that are in the industry that you know. Right now, Invisalign's market capitalization is $13.6 billion. Um, that was at the, as of the end of the last quarter. Uh, you think of Henry Schein, who sells lots and lots of stuff and has been around for a long, long time, many decades. Their market capitalization is $14.1, and then Dent Splice Rona, who just um, merged those two companies. So they're selling everything from x-ray machines to you know, brackets and things like that. They're at 14.1 million globally. And um, I would suggest to you that by the end of the year, or probably by the end of the quarter, that the market capitalization of a line will surpass these two companies and drift over time significantly past these two companies. So it's a formidably sized company um, as well. It's currently led by Joe Hogan. Uh, that, As you may know, there's been three CEOs with... Um, a line over its last 20 years, um, and I've kind of followed the biographies at least. I don't know these gentlemen intimately or personally. Uh, met Joe once uh, personally, 
but um, you know his background is really this is almost like a startup to him. You know he spent you know 20 years really as the CEO of GE, uh, working under Jack Welch at GE, and was president of GE Healthcare. Um, you know a multi-billion-dollar company. He went to Zurich and uh, ran CEO ABB Limited, which was a $40 billion company. Um, and Invisalign did a billion dollars last year. So you know he knows how to run a large company. He understands the global marketplace, and he's really leading this business. I think from this concept of proof of concept orthodontically to conversion of the marketplace to use the product, and um, really. Uh, I think is the right leader for the right time for this business. And uh, it's been fun as a business guy to just kind of follow the progression of, of leaders and so forth. So let's look at some market data. How's the market uh, looking at Invisalign and, and, and really the whole orthodontic space? Um, there's an article in Orthodontic Products uh, several issues back where Joe Hogan had an interview, and I think it's a template for what he calls and I'll borrow the term, the end-to-end -end, you know, digital platform. And he states in the article that currently in North America we treat about 3 million orthodontic cases a year, and we're in a, company, uh, we're in a country of 310 million, something like that. North America also includes Canada, which adds another 40-some million. So we've got 350-plus million people uh, running around out there, and we're treating 3 million of them uh, orthodontically currently. And he makes the case, and if you read some of the publications from the ADA and from SDC and others, that there's actually about 50 to 70 million of that population that could benefit from orthodontic treatment, yet we're only treating 3 million. And when you think about SDC and their claims that they're really attracting a patient that wouldn't come to your office and so forth, perhaps this is true. And I think it is true, actually, that there's a lot of folks out there that aren't going to go for a five or $6,000 case, but would like a better smile. And I think SDC and the products that are popping up like weeds around that concept are, are trying to attract some of those patients. And can your practice attract those patients? Does it want to attract those patients? I think that's a business question yet unanswered, but one that you should ask yourself. And if it is possible to expand the market, then isn't that a win for the consumer and a win for the current orthodontist? Just think of what the world would look like in your space if we went from 3 million to 6 million orthodontic patients. Uh, we'd be at 100% capacity. We really wouldn't care about SDC and some of these other things. And is it possible with all this kind of new noise directly um, aimed at the consumer that many, many, many more consumers will want orthodontic treatment? And if it is, is it possible for your practice to play in that? I think that's the question that we're trying to look at and answer, and I think the answer is there is expansion in the marketplace uh, that's possible. Um, there is interest on the consumer. What we haven't figured out is how does the solo and small group practice orthodontic owner um, play in that right now? And um, so it's something I'm intimately looking at, and um, I hope you are too. So I wanted to try to give you a picture of what I think the digital platform looks like because you're going to hear this, this term from the podiums going forward and people kind of look at me with a blank scare, stare and say, I, I really don't understand what that is. And so here's my attempt to kind of draw that out for you and hopefully I'll, I'll get smarter about this as time goes on. But when we talk about the digital platform, let's pretend that there really are 50 to 70 million possible orthodontic you know, interested parties out there in North America. And how do we speak to them? Well, we speak to them a number of ways. 
um, but we want to draw them to our practices in the ways that we're talking to them right now. Um, some are familiar to us and some are not. Uh, but certainly social media is big. I talked to my daughter recently, who's the senior at Chapel Hill, and she said, Dad, what do you know about Smile Direct Club? And I said, not as much as I want to. They're not publicly held. Um, you know, I, I read what I can find, but not a lot. What do you know about them? And she goes, they're on my Instagram feed all the time, and they have celebrities that speak for them um, and so forth. And I said, you're kidding me. And um, she said, no. She said, my girlfriends and I had a discussion about it the other night, and uh, I told them I'd ask my dad, and I didn't have a whole lot to bring to the table. But social media is certainly a way that if you have the scale, you can talk to folks, and Invisalign is doing that um, really in, in many different ways, and we'll take a look at some of those uh, in some later slides. Traditional media um, is print, um, TV, billboards, advertising, you know, ways that, you know, we, we're all familiar with but we haven't really been engaged with in the main in orthodontics, but um, certainly the consumer is, is seeing information about orthodontic treatment in these areas, largely because of Invisalign, NSDC, and, and so forth. And I think, by the way, that um, their, uh, their spots are, are, are pretty uh, seductive, um, at least the ones that I've seen. Uh, some red carpet events, you know, my, my uh, middle son, Hunter Benson, when he was in uh, middle school, he said, "He said, yeah, I know. I asked him about Invisalign. I said, what do you know about Invisalign? Because Invisalign Teen was just introduced. And he said, all I know is that they're at the Do Tour and they sponsor the Do Tour. Um, so, you know, Invisalign is understanding where to find kids, where they spend time. And, um, you know, they're embedding the message uh, with that group. And I think that's that could be good for your practice if you adopt this. Uh, word of mouth, that's what we all live on and want. Uh, wouldn't it be nice if we just had word of mouth and all our patients said great things about us and so forth, and now we have review systems and things like that. And then, of course, professional referrals that we've talked about. We still have to talk to the pedos and the general dentist and so forth. So that's kind of how we're speaking to the consumer. And how does that translate to your office? And this is a graph that I want to go through a little bit <clears throat> because this is what I think the digital platform looks like today. And I'll just kind of walk you through that after this slide kind of plays through um, and so forth. And um, you might want to take a picture of this and, and see kind of what parts of your practice you need to focus on to really start to meet this uh, goal of being a really efficient end-to-end -end digital practice. So I think it starts with this new patient exam, and there's a lot of um, opportunity right now to engage these millennial moms and uh, these Gen X moms that are the mothers of your patients and the fathers of your patients, the dads. Um, they don't want to pick up the phone and talk to you, but they're fine looking on your website. And if you have this capability to kind of submit your health history forms and the things that are required before a new patient exam, that's important. Then we come into the practice and we do digital records. Um, we do that you know, with our cameras and we do that with our scanners and we do that with our radiography machines digitally now. And then you as the doctor doing this diagnostic setup and in the bracket world there's ways to do that, but certainly you understand it in the Invisalign world. We then send that off, um, you know, finally approve it. We get our aligners um, that are manufactured digitally. We do some refinements and mid-treatment. We finally debond, we do a scan and a retainer delivery, and that kind of completes that circle. Where the business aspects are concerned, 
um, you know, we communicate hopefully via really live chat, text, um, even, you know, Facebook Messenger now with patients um, and their responsible parties. We want to digitally um, authorize their insurance. We want to settle the contract uh, digitally. OrthoFi has kind of uh, been a disruptor in this uh, space as um, if you use OrthoBank and you can do AcceptX Pro, something like that. Um, we want to accept our payments digitally. We're not doing a lot of that right now, but you can do credit cards and things like that. But I think we'll do digital payment acceptance. And then finally, when the patient exits, they'll do a review for us, hopefully. That's good. And they'll go into retention. Um, and then we have, for the first time, some outcomes reporting and things like that. And we have our reviews up there. So the whole cycle of the digital system looks something like this to me right now. I think it will become more refined. But the whole concept is, can we use technology to more efficiently um, move the process through in our practices? And if so, can we take some of this expansion demand of patients and can we incorporate them into our practice and perhaps see more volume? Um, I think that's the dream. And so that's my picture of, of kind of how that goes. So I mentioned Gage and analytics reporting, and I want to share some information. I think Gage is a great product for you uh, for lots of reasons, and one of those reasons is it gives comparative analytic data. So um, as I give presentations, I'll call Gage and I'll say, hey, can you just run me a report on what's happening this year uh, compared to last year or so forth? And, and that's what we see here is, you know, they have, this represents 1,200 and some locations. That's not 1,200 doctors, but locations uh, that are currently uh, using Gage to track. And, you know, we look at total exams over here. You know, they're slightly going up the last three years. This is 14, 15, and 16. Uh, you look at the adult patient base has been a place where we've seen some double-digit growth, which is fantastic. Child exams, not so much. And again, I think we're going to see that increase because we're having more children enter the um, the space uh, right now. But aligner treatment is the place where we've seen double-digit growth. And so there's some real tailwinds behind, you know, what you can do uh, with Invisalign because of the inertia that the company's created. And I think jumping on those tailwinds is something that you should consider as a practice owner because, you know, we're not seeing double-digit growth in the economy. We're not seeing you know, growth in, in, in production and net collections is right here at just kind of wavering between 1% and 4%. Um, and so the economy is only growing at 2.7% over the last seven years, something like that. And, but Invisalign treatment is growing at this tremendous clip. And so if that's true, um, do you want to hitch on to some of that inertia and grow your practice within it? Um, and I think it's it's a concept that you should consider. If you want to look at some more recent data, this compares to the first six months of 2016 to the first six months of 2017. And again, you see this kind of stepladder effect of a liner treatment kind of outpacing everything else that's out there um, and so forth. And, um, you know, do you want to participate in that or, or do you not? And if you do, can you do it profitably? And that's where we want to go now. And so... I want to look at some practice data because I, I came to look at Invisalign uh, really the first 15 years probably uh, of their existence very skeptically. Uh, what I saw was higher overheads and lower profit uh, for practices that um, incorporated Invisalign. And I said, let's, let's kind of look at what the truth is because those were just feelings. Um, and so we decided to look deeper into the data. 
and to get you there, I want to walk you through kind of my thought process. Um, I do valuations and transitions out of my company. Uh, I have a business partner, Doug Koppel, who was a CPA in a previous life and is now a CVA, a certified valuation analyst. We have 11 people here, and we're just in the orthodontic space. So I think we see as many or more orthodontic practices than anybody in the country. And what we get to see that uh, is, is nice that not uh, most companies don't is how you spend money. Um, you know, there's some folks out there that can tell you, uh, I'm not a practice consultant or anything like that, but they can tell you, you know, how to make your practice better and how to improve your consultations and, and this and that, but I can tell you how much money you're making. And so this is a slide that shows some summary data over the last 10 years in my company of the valuations that we performed, and it starts in 2007 and goes to 2016, because I don't have 17 data in here yet. But it shows kind of the net collections of the practices that I'm seeing. They're, they're gradually getting bigger, 1.3 million to 1.6 million uh, last year, and the practice incomes. And I focus on the practice incomes with audiences where I speak uh, to residents or young doctors because as they consider uh, the corporate environment, um, and a lot of millennials are very attracted to it. Um, just uh, they're more about life experiences. Um, they're not as entrepreneurial, I don't think, as future uh, past generations. Um, but they also, you know, went to ortho school to make some money, and they also accumulated a lot of debt in ortho school. And what attracts them to the corporate environment is the lifestyle of uh, that environment and the money, because the corporate guys will pay more than you will or an associate right now, and I think that will change over time and get more towards parity. But you can't make this kind of money um, in the corporate world, at least you can't today. I mean, it's very rare. Uh, the other thing I look at here is this um, incremental overhead creep. It's not huge, but over the last 10 years, you know, I saw 50% and then 55 and then 56, and then last year 57. And that's because of those slides we looked at earlier where we're spending a little bit more on marketing, we're spending a little bit more on technology, and we're spending, uh, quite honestly, a little bit more um, as we incorporate Invisalign. And so we have this kind of overhead creep where our practices are getting bigger. We're using some of these digital tools to make us efficient so we can increase our volume, but our overheads are incrementally increasing. Not at an alarming rate, but I think this will continue, and they'll continue to increase. And then if you're interested, just value uh, before debt and as a percentage of collections. So what I'm seeing last year was the average practice that I valued was doing 1.6 million, and it was operating at 57% overhead and selling for 77% of collections. So that's kind of summary data from, from my shop um, and so forth. So as we look at overhead, what I would do if I valued your practice was I would look back at the last three years of um, practice information, and I would figure out what's doctor discretionary, and I would take your P&L and I would kind of force it into this form. And when I'm looking at Invisalign, the thing that I look at the most is the salaries and wages. This is W-2 wages for your practice, okay? And the average that I'm seeing right now is 20.5%, and that's a good target for you to shoot from. Okay, so if you'll take your associates that you're paying out of, out of your P&L, and if you'll take your income out of your P&L, and any family members that you're paying out of your P&L, and just look at, for the staff that I have, what am I paying them on W-2 wages? And this isn't benefits and all that kind of stuff, just their W-2 wages. I want that to be at around 20%, okay? So that's something that you can take home with you. And the reason I want it to be at 20% is because I'm going to go back to this revenue per FTE, all right? 
revenue per full-time equivalent. This is the formula to figure it out for your practice, and I want each of you to figure it out for your own practice. But basically take your net collections or net revenue. So if I have a million dollars and divide it by your number of full-time equivalents, okay, number of full-time people in your practice, two part-timers equals one full-timer. So don't get lost in the weeds with how do I do this. If you have three full-timers and three part-timers, then you have four and a half um, full-time equivalents. And just divide that number into your net revenue, and that will give you a number. And um, that number averages $180,000 per full-time equivalent. And if you're doing a lot of Invisalign, it needs to average 200 or 220 or 250, and we'll talk about that going forward. But the concept of being profitable with Invisalign really rests with this revenue per FTE number. Can we really do more with less people or more with the same amount of people? And the uh, the argument from the consultants is right here. The consultants that I talk to, which are most of them in the orthodontic space, tell me that a good chair side assistant can see 14 to 16 bracket appointments per chair per assistant per day. But if they were just doing Invisalign, they could do a lot more because there's less to do. It's less mechanical in nature. And so if they were just doing Invisalign, they could do uh, a chair side assistant assistant could do 22 to 25 appointments per chair per assistant per day. Now, you can believe that or not believe that, but if you don't believe that, it's hard to get um, cool with the Invisalign lab fee because in order for your profit margins to stay where they historically have been, we've got to believe that this is true, and if it is, you have 56% of a potential increase in chair side efficiency with the staff that you're paying right now. That means that your practice could grow with Invisalign, if this is true, by 56%, you wouldn't have to hire another chair side, okay, if this data is believable to you. And again, it's given in ranges, but I want you to think about that because I'll show you some data in a minute that proves it out. The second thing I want you to do if you really want to go deeper with Invisalign is track your Invisalign lab expense as a separate line item on your P&L. Not all of you do this. Uh, some do, some don't, but if you're not doing it now, start doing it. So if you do QuickBooks yourself, just add uh, to your chart of accounts an Invisalign lab fee that's separate than your normal lab or orthodontic supply expenses. That's important so that you can track what you're spending with them and then look at this revenue per FTE number, right? So what did I do? I looked at this information, and by the way, if you want to take a picture of this, this is probably the most downloaded um, piece of paper from my shop across the country. I'll give you a second to do that, but if you'll take a picture of that, there's a uh, link that where you can download this and get what the averages are that I'm seeing in the country. If we need to come back to that at the Q&A time period, just let me know. Um, so if um, we look at the practice data um, and start to analyze how can you be profitable with Invisalign, this was a, a task that I took on early this year. And in order to get in the study that I wanted to do, you had to be valued by Benson, Clark, and Koppel. So I knew that the um, overhead rates were done uniformly. Uh, you just didn't tell me what you thought your overhead was. And you had to have um, your case starts separated by how many bracket starts I had versus how many aligner starts I had. And you had to have a separate line item on your P&L to show me how much you were spending with a line because I wanted to know that number. So I did that, and in the last couple of years, I found 46 practices, one through 46 here, that qualified for this study. And the summary data is in front of you, and what it shows is that the average share of chair, which is the number of uh, aligner 
cases over all cases or all case starts was 13.4%. That that translated to 54 aligner cases a year. The average overhead of this study was 58.3%, pretty good. And that the revenue per FTE was 203 and change, and the normalized collections were 2 million and change. And so, you know, there's not a, a whole lot of data here, but there was enough for me to say that I feel like a practice that incorporates Invisalign is bigger because if you remember my 2016 average was what, 1.7 million or something like that and now here I see 2.02 uh, million. My overhead was about the same, so just slightly higher by tenths of a percent, but my revenue per FTE on average was 180,000, now it's moved to 203. So I'm getting more out of my chair side of, uh, um, assistance in practices that incorporate Invisalign and my share of chair in this practice is, is dim back here, but it ranges from 2% up to 31% and in some years 40%. So that's what I saw in this study. And then I just wanted to take out a few practices as, as examples as I kind of finish up this talk. This is a practice in New Jersey, a place people tell me it's hard, hard to grow. And, um, you know, what I see in this practice is a practice that went from 55 starts to almost 100 starts to 121 starts over three years. Okay, that's interesting to me because I think it's intentional. And when I look at their overhead or the share of chair first, I went from 12% to 16 to 21. So I doubled my share of chair. I doubled in a little bit more my um, Invisalign starts and my overhead went from 60.7 to 62.8 to 59. So I did it profitably. In my revenue per FTE down here was 192,000, that bottom number. You know, so I began to see this where you could intentionally do more Invisalign but keep your overhead. Here's another practice in Ohio, and I see this a lot with elite providers. Here's a practice that's doing a lot of Invisalign, 183 cases, 198, 156 through September. They did 200 that year. That asterisk up there means not a full year. And my share of chair was 29.8, 32, and 30, so a lot of Invisalign but my overhead was 55, 52, and 49. Again, a practice that's pretty big, 3.5 million, but is at 236,000 revenue per FTE, very efficient, okay? So we need to be efficient if we're gonna do a lot of Invisalign. The other thing I wanna point out on this practice is, I see this a lot, um, is Invisalign's kind of trained you to get to your elite level or your premier level or whatever level you wanna to get to, um, and then you stop. And um, because that's when your discount levels um, kind of stopped until you got to the next level. And so we see this a lot, and um, this is something that I think you want to move through and so forth. The last case I want to show you is in Florida, a um, little bit smaller practice, about the average that I saw last year, 1.7 million revenue per uh, FTE, 199, and they went from 86 to 153 aligner starts, their overhead went from 55.7 to 57.6, so slightly up, but not hugely, but largely because this revenue per FTE was 199,000. So I think the message to me was um, really uh, the following. Well, let, let me show you one more. Um, I tripped across this practice two weeks ago. Uh, I, I just threw this picture in um, because 
this is an interesting story. I had a practice that was at 13% share of chair three years ago, and I went to 95% share of chair with Invisalign. And um, you know, this is kind of what their Invisalign stocking system looked like, and it was it took me by surprise. But I've been talking with this doctor for a long time. He was doing 900,000. He was 58 years old. He called me and he said. There's a patient of mine that just got accepted to ortho school that gets out in three years. I want to bring him in as a partner because I'm in a small town in Kentucky, and I don't think too many people are going to be interested in coming to my town, but I don't want to retire. Um, what do I do? And I said, you grow your practice. And he said, well, there's one other orthodontist in my town, and you know, for years and years, you know, he's got his, I got mine, and I haven't grown. I'm flatlined. And I said, well, you can consider a number of things. And one of those things was, you know, what about differentiating your practice with Invisalign? And that's what he chose to do. So he went into the deep water all in, as you can see. And what happened to his practice is um, he was running 54% overhead three years ago. He went all in Invisalign and over three years went to 95% chair of chair. He branded his practice as the Invisalign practice in his small town of 7,000 people. And his practice went from $900,000 to $1.4 million. And I said, hooray, now you have you know, the scale at least to bring another doctor in and you can continue to work. And so these were kind of the takeaways. Take he went from no growth to 27% growth. Um, he went from 13% to 95%. His overhead did spike in years two and three because he did it fast. But he went from seven employees to five, so his revenue per FTE today went from 154,000 uh, three years ago to 254,000, and he's quite profitable. Um, so it was just a great story. My takeaways from this study are that if you choose to do more Invisalign, you can. Um, you can maintain uh, your overhead um, as you increase your share of chair. Um, revenue per FT needs to be a number that you understand and it must increase as you go deep into Invisalign. Uh, that scale does work. As you get bigger, there's a few fixed expenses like your rent and things like that that help lower your overhead. Um, and I'm seeing that Invisalign practices are bigger. And it is possible if by choice you want to say, I'm going to double or triple and kind of catch the, the, the wind that Invisalign has created with this you know, growth that they're that, that, they're quarter over quarter producing, um, it's possible to double or triple your share of chair in two to three years if you want to. So to end this up, I'll just talk about cons consumer data. Um, you know, Invisalign team is something that's really not hugely penetrated in most of your practices. Um, when I'm not a clinician, so I don't know a ton about uh, Invisalign team, but I raised three kids that you've seen that are millennials, and I know that teenagers are stupid, and they do stupid things, and that one of the biggest uh, objections that you may have is they won't wear their retainers or they'll lose them, but the data that I get back from Invisalign says they actually are as compliant or more compliant than adults, and that there's some programs that Invisalign's put in place that they can explain to you better than I can that say they guarantee that, you know, if you want to switch them back, they'll give you a credit and so forth, and less than 1% of Invisalign team providers do that. But as a numbers guy, I look at the recent numbers. This was on, just announced a, a month ago, their second quarter results. 55,000 teen cases were started, um, you know, last quarter that Invisalign teen is actually outpacing growth-wise in the last three quarters, the uh, Invisalign standard adult market, and the growth is at, on teen is at 37.6% year over year, which is huge. And again, we're only growing our practices at, at between 1% and 4%. So I think, again, there's a lot of tailwinds with Invisalign. 
Um, this is a picture of Alliance Building in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm in uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, so this is just down the street from me, about 60 miles. I had a chance to go visit this. They're going to have 200 employees in this uh, in Raleigh over the next couple of years. They started a call center. This is Chris Thompson, who who uh, runs it. Um, my business partner, Doug Koppel, is right here, um, and this is Shannon Patterson, one of my recruiters, and this is Chris and myself. And I got to go visit this, and they're actually have three teams there, an iPro team that's kind of an onboarding team, an inside sales team that's kind of a farm team for outside sales reps, and this concierge service, which is what I want to talk about and why I went to visit. The concierge service takes consumers who have hit the doctor locator or done a smile assessment and then unchecked the box that says it's okay for Invisalign to call me, and they have um, call center people calling the Invisalign consumer saying, I noticed that you did a smile assessment. Um, and you said it was okay to contact you. They do it by text. They've got Salesforce.com implemented and so forth. Can I help you find an Invisalign provider in your area? And then they'll connect live with somebody. This is Lori Wynn. She leads a team. We, we saw her successfully connect a patient. This is Bradley Sovine uh, sitting with Shannon. He actually had a mom on there that had two daughters and herself, and they connected with an office live and scheduled three new patient exams and so forth. So Invisalign is trying to put some resource and learning about who these patients are to try to drive them to your office, and I think um, that's pretty incredible. My takeaways from that visit were that the doctor locator is important, so the deeper you go into Invisalign, as you know, the higher you get. Your staff needs to know that this concierge person might be contacting them. Uh, that's really important. If you're going to have your phone uh, you know, off at lunch, that's bad because that's what a lot of these people are doing things, or if you say you're open on Friday and your phone doesn't work, on Friday, it goes to the answering machine. That's not so good, so make sure your phone coverage is uh, accurate. That there's a lot of noise around, do these people really show up? Do they say yes? If they do show up, should I change and have you know, an Invisalign concierge kind of patient and make that a shorter uh, consultation and so forth? So I suggest that practices invoke a new patient exam-C for, for a concierge code so you can track what really happens to these people because I think we can get smarter about how we communicate with them because they may have different needs than a normal patient that would call in under a, uh, and find you different uh, under your normal channels, and that your line rep um, can can be a great resource to, to to help you with those. So that's kind of the end of the presentation. Um, you know, I, I hope that this was some information that was helpful. I know it's time uh, just to summarize my suggestions. Invisalign, as we've talked, has great growth. Um, you can piggyback on this and I think help grow your practice beyond the marketplace. Um, these Facebook groups for Invisalign I, you know, are free and there's a lot of great information. If you're not a part of these, I think you should consider it. Um, you know, We have to be more efficient with our staff and we have to give them tools. If you don't have an iTero scanner, I think it greases the skids and helps you kind of be more efficient with less people as you grow your business. So an iTero scanner is a good idea. I really love Gage because it kind of forces you to look on a dashboard at what's happening in your practice, and it's fun to track success, and I think that's what you'll see. So Gage is a product that I uh, think you'd want to take a look at, and if you're going to uh, get these concierge calls, developing a script for them so your staff really knows what's going on is important. Um, and lastly, and most importantly, I think, calculate your revenue per FTE with a goal of 230000 plus or minus is that way you can be really efficient and profitable 
with the Align set of products. It's where you get your CE certificate information if you want to write that link down. A couple of quick reminders. Please go to the link that's on your screen right now to take your survey and get your CE certificate. One week from today, this entire program will be archived at the Education tab on your Invisalign doctor site. Chris, I'd like to thank you again for a great presentation and to all of you for taking your time out on this Friday. We look forward to seeing you on another Ask the Expert webinar. Thanks very much.